Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry once again. Thank you also for your prayers and support. I'm overwhelmed by a sense of my unworthiness and uselessness in the cause of God without Christ in my life. But to be a servant in the cause of Christ is the only thing I want to do. I need him more now than ever, so please continue to pray for me and for Keep the Faith and our dedicated team. Thank you also for your confidence in our work. So many of you write to me and share your thoughts with me, and I really appreciate it. Please remember to order our DVD series called The Prophetic Secrets of the New World Order. The price has just been lowered, and now you can obtain this powerful DVD series that will give you the principles you need to understand the events that take place every day that fulfill Bible prophecy. Call our office at 540-672-3553, and they will gladly help you. Or call our Australian office at 03-5963-7000. Also, please invite someone to fill in the pink card in your packet and send it in so that they can become subscribers and prepare their lives for the coming of Christ also. To start with, I would like to share with you a very encouraging statement that has often been a huge blessing to me. In a world of confusion and false ideals and contradictory messages, this statement gives me a sense of the bigness of God. It tells me that I can trust the Holy One of Israel, the Almighty God, to give heavenly guidance Christian strength and Bible maturity in the midst of the wicked and corrupt generation we have now. It is also a great comfort in uncertain times. It is from the wonderful book, Ministry of Healing, page 417. Listen carefully. Above the distractions of the earth, God sits enthroned. All things are open to his divine survey. And from his great and calm eternity, he orders that which his providence sees best. Isn't that a wonderful statement, my friends? If you take some time to think about it, you can almost sense a connection to that calm eternity in which there is no disunity, no war, no fighting of any kind, no divorce, no child abuse, no impurity. Oh, what a wonderful day it will be when we can all gather in the calm eternity around our Heavenly Father's throne and bask in the unrivaled atmosphere, the love and song of heaven. Perhaps we'll need a thousand years just to unwind, just to fully relax and take it all in. The curse will be over. Sin and wickedness will not plague us anymore. The precious hours that we spend in Bible study and reflection here on earth are a foretaste of that great day. They infuse a little of heaven's peace and calm into our hearts. May God help us all be there. Today my subject is on the topic of marriage and its consequences on children and families and on society. No one single factor can be more damaging to a child's chances of security and success in life than a home with only one parent or a home in an alternative relationship to biblical marriage. 
On the other hand, no one single factor can be more helpful to a child's success in life and to our society's future than the honest-to-goodness biblical marriage. Many scientific studies have borne this out, especially in recent times. Yet there are those that are determined to destroy this God-given institution. The secular left has an agenda to destroy the family and all of traditional and biblical morality that has been the undergirding of national greatness, but the scheme is personally devastating as well. The secular left and many on the right have no idea that they are being manipulated and played by the enemy of souls who is determined to keep as many souls out of heaven as possible. Imagine the devastating power of a social order on the salvation of souls that has no family at its foundation. Confusion and passion bear sway, and hardly anyone understands why society is crumbling. Today, we have all manner of confusion, including gender identity, morality, right and wrong, authority, and a host of other principles. The family, and consequently society, is being frayed at the seams, and it has led to an ever-increasing stream of violence and bloodshed poured into the streets, schools, and homes of our neighborhoods. The family is the most basic unit of society, and therefore it is the special target of the enemy. And over the last 50 years or more, he has been able to largely destroy the ideal of stable, secure families and the influence and protection they bring to the social order of all Western civilizations. It is more than mere coincidence that the family is being undermined by a malicious movement that intends to overthrow the family. To do so, it must overthrow Christianity, and in particular, make it impossible for the last generation to understand, let alone proclaim, the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. Through society, the enemy is aiming to destroy God's last message and its messengers, if he can, by destroying everything that is good and noble. Without solid, stable, secure, and thriving marriages, God would not be able to develop mature examples of his character in the world in these last days. Without stable, secure families, society is falling to pieces in the name of equality and justice, and we blame anyone but ourselves. In the context of the end times, we need to understand the marriage advantage. So let us bow our heads and ask for God's presence as we study these things today. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your presence through the Holy Spirit would be with us more than ever. We need to understand your will in our lives and make certain of our salvation. Help us to see the importance of forming biblical marriages and secure families. Help us to see the efforts of the enemy to destroy even godly families, if possible, by the influences around us. Give us victory over our own selfishness and self-centeredness. As we study the marriage advantage today, we pray that you will enlighten us and give us a sense of your presence and your will for us. In Jesus' name, amen. As I begin this message today, let me first of all say to those who may be listening to this message that have not had successful marriages, that I am not going to judge you or your circumstances. I do not mean to make anyone feel as though they are a failure or that there is no hope for them or their children. I believe that God has ordained the church to assist those who have lost their footing in marriage and restore them as much as possible and provide kind counselors and guidance for them.
God has always had ways by which he can guide you through the maze of challenges in this area. So take courage. There is a heaven still to be gained and a hell to shun. I also want to share with you that my wife and I collaborated on this message. She did much of the research and wrote an article for her magazine, Last Generation, and I have expanded it and put it into a sermon. So I hope you can hear a little of Betsy coming through this important message. And speaking of Last Generation, if you are not getting your own subscription, you're missing something really worthwhile. For those who love present truth, Last Generation is chock full of great stuff to help you and your loved ones along the way to heaven. You can also use the Last Generation magazine as a soul-winning tool. You can order bulk subscriptions in almost any size you want. You can hand them out to people who don't know our God like we do. Call Last Generation and talk to them about subscriptions for you and your friends and your family, as well as ways in which you can be a literature missionary. Here is their number, 540-672-5671. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you can, to Genesis 1, 27 and 28. After creating a perfect world to sustain life eternally, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Did you notice that God blessed the holy pair in Eden? That was their wedding. God married them and told them to be fruitful and multiply. This marriage was perfect, just like the rest of creation. It was designed to be a special relationship that was more than just love between two people. It was also to be a loving incubator for secure children to grow and mature under godlike parents and friends. Within the marriage union, God's intention was to secure both the family and society, for marriage is really the foundation of a stable society. No wonder the enemy is so determined to destroy the family and thereby destroy the image of God in man if he can. On the other hand, God is working to have families in these last days that will reflect his law and his order so that the confused world will have shining examples of God's grace. Marriage has been around as long as man and woman. God had created the world, and each step of that process laid a foundation for families to flourish. It was God's intention that all the elements of nature work together for the perfect ecosystem for eternal life and to sustain families in optimum perfection. It was idyllic. Once God had created the sustainable environment, he then created man, gave him his work to do, and established his headship over the entire planet and all living and inanimate things. Then God created a helper for him, and in doing so, he created the first family. When God created marriage and told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, he set up a stream of blessings for parents, their children, and the communities they would build. It was to be a cooperative engagement. They were to work together, all three of them, to build up their home and minister to each other, thus providing a foundation for a harmonious planet. When sin came into the hearts of Adam and Eve, home life was disrupted. Eve led Adam into sin. She started wearing the pants in the family, as the saying goes. Now Eve was the head and Adam was something else. Everything was changed now. 
When God came to the garden to talk to Adam, he first had to restore order so that human beings would be happy again. And today, the enemy has continued his effort to distort the order that God created for marriage, society, and his church. He constantly is looking for ways to rearrange headship so that women dominate the men and the men are effeminate. He prepares for this through men who are unsanctified and mistreat women by demanding unreasonable compliance with men's demands. He gets women to react and seek liberation from unreasonable dominance. And he introduces the idea that women need to recover their equality with men because they have been subjected to cruel and unreasonable control. Once feminism gets a hold, he then introduces alternative arrangements to marriage. After all, he argues, it is the marriage institution that is to blame for the problems. He introduces same-sex attraction and marriage alternatives. He also puts a lot of stress on families through alcohol and drugs. Anyway, he is always working toward divorce. And as immorality increasingly runs riot, he watches in glee as families falter and then collapse one right after the other. My friends, if you don't have Christ in your heart and in your home, you're in trouble and your marriage isn't likely to succeed, if the statistics mean anything. Today, biblical marriage has all but collapsed. And now God's people face the greatest crisis that they have ever faced. And here we are on the verge of eternity. But we are muddling around without strength and power to resist and overcome the enemy, especially in regard to our families. And society is feeling the pinch our world is changing fast. We are enthralled with change, at least change away from God, and the faster the better. We're updating technology, embracing innovation and novelty, discarding yesterday's model, dismantling social norms, tearing down statues, revising curricula, rewriting laws, reinventing sex and gender, and especially redefining marriage and family, all at a lightning pace. In every way, and in a thousand forms, the enemy does all he can to destabilize families. He has been at it for nearly six millennia, and he isn't going to stop in these last days, even though he has almost unlimited control of the whole world. And by the way, you can tell who's under the control of the enemy by what they demand or try to impose on an unwilling people. You can tell that God is not on the minds of the globalists. They're trying to impose global controls and limit your freedom. You can tell that God is not on the minds of those of the same-sex marriage movement because they're trying to force everyone to accept them even though their lifestyle is condemned in Scripture. Coercion is never God's way. It is the enemy's way of doing things. That should tell you something. And now he has caused an enormous amount of family dysfunction at all levels of society, and it has been happening with such blinding speed that many people just cover their ears and their eyes and hope that it will not affect them. The spirit of revolution is in the air. Anything and everything that has anything to do with biblical norms or traditional principles, whether of marriage or business, is under assault. And marriage is truly under assault in these last days, just as Jesus said it would be. We are in circumstances today that have almost totally destroyed functional families that live within God's principles. So few of them exist that many have given up on biblical marriage. What has been the effect of that crisis? What has been the result of decades of declining 
marital and family stability. Only in the last few decades have researchers fully comprehended just how important the institution of biblical marriage is in synchronizing the lives of two committed adults on raising the next generation to become secure, healthy, productive, and resilient. Did you hear those words? Secure, healthy, productive, and resilient. What do those words mean? Secure refers to someone who understands himself and is able to identify his or her priorities and moral principles. It is someone who looks at life in a positive way. It is someone who is not afraid to venture into uncharted waters and has a sense of direction and purpose. Healthy, in this case, refers to a person who is able to function in reasonable health and is not limited by destabilizing and debilitating diseases real or imagined, so that the spouse doesn't have to spend an excessive amount of time looking after their basic needs. It is important to note that there are times when accidents happen or illness comes unexpectedly through no fault of the individual, which changes the situation for their marriage. This term, healthy, is referring to a state of mind as much as to anything else. The word productive is referring to someone who can get a job and keep it, and who is also active in other areas of home life and other factors so that their spouse is content and happy and the children are secure and suitably cared for. Resilient refers to a person who is able to bounce back from setbacks, problems, mistakes, and even physical or emotional limitations or debilities. It is someone who is capable of finding solutions to problems and working out those solutions to turn the problem into a success or victory. The results of the research are compelling, but despite all of the impressive research on the benefits of marriage, there has been very few times in history when the principles of marriage in society have unraveled at the unprecedented pace it is today. The research I will share with you today reflects the reality of today's families and the crisis they are in. But the trends that currently affect children and their development are some of the most devastating and heartrending ever and are undoubtedly felt around the world. Biblical marriage these days is under a very heavy assault from heterosexual partners cohabitating to absentee fathers to LGBTQI activists attempting to make society queer. And though it has been undermined for many years, Going all the way back to the free love sexual revolution of the 1960s, it is as if in the last decade the enemy has dramatically stepped up his attack on marriage with devastating effect on society. He's been more effective than in any previous generation with a direct assault on the very institution that was created in Eden to ensure man's happiness. Marriage is one of the two institutions that God established in that beautiful home for the newly created and newly married couple, Adam and Eve. The other institution was the Seventh-day Sabbath. Needless to say, the enemy is determined to destroy both. In his last effort to erase the image of God in man and overthrow anyone that still clings to the Bible as their rule of faith and practice. And in the last days, both marriage and the Sabbath are facing powerful forces, determined to destroy any remnant of them if possible, especially among God's people. Once marriage is viewed as a casual convenience to be entered or exited at will, 
He will have successfully destroyed the whole of God's plan for marriage, and we're nearly there. Then the direct assault on the Sabbath will begin. The only way that the enemy can undermine marriage and the Sabbath is by undermining confidence and loyalty in the Bible. And believe it or not, the Bible actually predicts that this will happen. Turn to Revelation 11.3. Listen to it carefully. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. This is speaking of the Bible, the Old and New Testaments. They continued their witness during the Middle Ages, when Rome kept the Bible hidden from the people. Yet the Walden Seas and others continued to secretly publish portions of Scripture and spread them around throughout the empire so that at least some people would be able to understand the true way of salvation. Rome has falsified the way of salvation with a lot of fake representations of God and the way in which man is to have his sins forgiven and be saved. This led to the complete overthrow of the Bible in the time of the French Revolution. Notice verse 6. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And this is exactly what happened in the time of the French Revolution. Water in Bible prophecy refers to people, even multitudes of people. During the French Revolution, the bloodshed was tremendous, and tens of thousands were killed in the name of establishing a new government in the absence of God. The guillotine wasn't fast enough in executing its victims. They had to find other and more effective ways to kill. The Bible goes on to say in verse 7 and 8, that when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them, and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So the great city is compared to Egypt. This is talking about the atheism of Pharaoh, who denied the existence of God. No king or ruler so adamantly opposed God as the Pharaoh of Egypt. Who is Jehovah that I should hearken unto his voice and let Israel go? I know not Jehovah, and moreover, I will not let Israel go, Exodus 5, verse 2. Well, he did, in the end, let Israel go, but at a great cost. You can't fight God and win. And while the nation of France gave voice to his defiance of the living God in the secular philosophers of their time, it was only because God let them do that in order to reveal the lengths of depravity to which the enemy would take them. It also exposed the evil philosophy that led the nation of France into the abyss. But we also see this same arrogance today among the secular leftists in our society as well. And they have been dominating society for quite some time through the mainstream media, through politics, and of course through social media. But the great city is also compared spiritually to Sodom. The corruption of Sodom and breaking the law of God was especially manifested in licentiousness, and this sin was also to be a preeminent characteristic of the nation that should fulfill the specifications of this scripture. Listen to this terrible description of what the government of France did to fulfill this prophecy. It's from The Great Controversy, page 269. 
According to the words of the prophet then, a little before the year 1798, some power of satanic origin and character would rise to make war upon the Bible. And in the land where the testimony of God's two witnesses should thus be silenced, there would be manifest the atheism of the Pharaoh and the licentiousness of Sodom. This prophecy has received a most exact and striking fulfillment in the history of France. During the revolution in 1793, the world for the first time heard an assembly of men born and educated in civilization and assuming their right to govern one of the finest of the European nations uplift their united voice to deny the most solemn truth which men's soul receives and renounce unanimously the belief and worship of a deity. France is the only nation in the world concerning which the authentic record survives that as a nation she lifted her hand in open rebellion against the author of the universe. Plenty of blasphemers, plenty of infidels there have been and still continue to be in England, Germany, Spain, and elsewhere, but France stands apart in the world's history as the single state which by the decree of her legislative assembly, pronounced that there was no God, and of which the entire population of the capital, and a vast majority elsewhere, women as well as men, danced and sang with joy in accepting the announcement. That's from the Great Controversy, page 269, as I said. Don't we have defiance of God today? Don't we have an aggressive anti-Christian spirit that has become very high-profile? They often use the term conservative, but they really mean Christian, especially when speaking politically. The leftist media rails against conservatives and anyone who would stand in their way of achieving their goals in order to essentially undermine all traditional values, constitutions, and social regulations in order to have their own licentious ways legalized and recognized as equal in value, neutral in morality, and accepted as normal by all of society. Today our nations are largely atheistic and licentious. Let me read a little more from The Great Controversy about the way marriage and morality was undermined at the time of the French Revolution. This is from page 270. Part of this statement is a quote from historian Sir Walter Scott. France presented also the characteristics which especially distinguished Sodom. During the revolution, there was manifest a state of moral debasement and corruption similar to that which brought destruction upon the cities of the plain. And the historian presents together the atheism and licentiousness of France as given in the prophecy. Intimately connected with these laws affecting religion was that which reduced the union of marriage, the most sacred engagement which human beings can form, and the permanence of which leads most strongly to the consolidation of society, to the state of a mere civil contract of a transitory character which any two persons might engage in and cast loose at pleasure. If fiends had set themselves to work to discover a mode of most effectually destroying whatever is venerable, graceful, or permanent in domestic life, and of obtaining at the same time an assurance that the mischief which it was their object to create should be perpetuated from one generation to another, they could not have invented a more effectual plan than the degradation of marriage. Sophie Arnault, 
an actress famous for the witty things she said, described the Republican marriage as the sacrament of adultery. Oh, my friends, are we not essentially there today? This is, in the clearest terms, describing the way in which the vast majority of people in today's Western societies view marriage, isn't it? Did you notice that the author called marriage a permanence that leads to consolidation of society? What does consolidation mean in this sense? It means that society is stable and strengthened, so marriage is at the center of the security of society. Why do we have so many mass murders in America, for instance? It's because families have been destroyed. The shooter at the school in the Florida mass murder a couple of months ago had come from a very unstable family situation, for example. So we are now very close to the fulfillment of the prophecy that compares the end of time to the French Revolution. Listen carefully to this statement from the book Education, page 228. At the same time, anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law, not only divine, but human. The centralizing of wealth and power, the vast combinations for the enriching of the few at the expense of the many, the combinations of the poorer classes for the defense of their interests and claims, the spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed, the worldwide dissemination of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution, all are tending to involve the whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. You see, the enemy does not want anyone to be loyal to Christ. And to destabilize marriage is one of the ways that he can annihilate it and destroy any vestige of loyalty to God and his law. And today, marriage is in deep trouble. It is sinking dramatically among lower and middle class Americans, down to a minority of 48% today. And this problem is even worse in largely secular Commonwealth countries. On Christmas Eve 2015, celebrated U.S. National Football League quarterback Cam Newton of the Carolina Panthers became a father to his first child and son, chosen Sebastian Newton. A popular mentor for kids' sports camps, Cam also visits kids' Christmas parties as Santa Cam and hands out generous gift certificates to sporting goods stores while promoting football, family, and philanthropy. He would be considered to be the consummate father. But here's the catch. Newton, who openly claims to be a Christian, is not married to Chosen's mother, his longtime girlfriend, Kia Proctor. Even after their recent announcement of a second child's birth, a daughter, Cam and Kia still have not chosen to give the best gift parents can give to their children, and that is marriage. And while Cam's children might have access to economic advantages and privileges unavailable to most children who live with unmarried parents, they will be at risk for other negative outcomes when parents don't make a marriage commitment. Being a sports hero, Cam's influence in favor of alternative relationships rather than a biblical family is certainly going to push the popular idea forward that you can cohabitate without marriage and the outcome for your children will be the same. Cam and Kia are not alone in their lifestyle. Cohabitation is increasingly seen as an equal alternative to traditional marriage, even among Christians. But the research shows that it is not. In fact, it is very inferior. 
Apparently, Cam and Kia view their relationship as an equal and neutral alternative to marriage. Marriage was God's plan. Therefore, it is not a human convention, but a divine covenant. But the Bible teaches that the only secure basis for procreation is in the marriage covenant between two individuals before God. Only then can children be brought into the world as the two marriage partners from two separate families become one flesh, meaning that they produce their own offspring from their united DNA. Any other alternative will have consequences that will place unnecessary burdens on society, the church, or other institutions and individuals. It will also have less than ideal outcomes in the children themselves. According to recent polls, the birth of children to unmarried parents has been rising. The 2015 Pew Research Report on Parenting in America reveals that between the years 1960 and 2014, the percentage of children under 18 living with their married biological parents has declined by more than a third. In contrast, the number of children living with a single parent has nearly tripled. Another emerging trend is the number of children with cohabitating parents like Cam and Kia who live together without getting married. Children now find themselves in a variety of family arrangements throughout their childhood. They could start as a child of cohabitating parents who might eventually marry, then divorce, and then start the cycle over again in another family arrangement with other children and adults, both related and unrelated to them. The direction of these trends is not good for children because we now know that marriage gives children the best childhood outcomes. Reams of social science and medical research convincingly show that children who are raised by their married biological parents enjoy better physical, mental, and emotional outcomes on average than children who are raised in other circumstances. Marriage, as opposed to other family relationships, has direct positive associations on a child's well-being. Research has shown stunning evidence of the value of biological parents living together. In fact, the effect of marriage on a child is more than the sum of the various other parts, such as economic circumstances, educational opportunities, social networks, parental skills and ability, stability, social support, and their neighborhoods, among others. The advantages of marriage for children's well-being are likely to be hard to replicate through public policy interventions, such as welfare or insurance assistance, other than those that bolster marriage itself. Researchers have made a strong case that marriage has a positive impact on children's schooling, their social and emotional adjustment, their employment, marriage, and mental health as adults. For instance, comparisons between children raised in homes with only the mother's involvement and no paternal engagement at all, with single mothers raising children with the father's involvement, though he is not living in the home, show some improvement in the child's well-being. However, neither of them are as good as when the father and mother are cohabitating together on the outcome for the children. Better still, parents in a marriage have the best effects on children. In other words, marriage benefits children much better than any other form of family structure. 
No wonder God instituted marriage as the way to provide for the security, stability, and long-term happiness of the children, both as children and as adults. But the research details specific advantages of marriage on children. Whereas in the past, education made the difference between the haves and the have-nots, for the last 20 years or more, marital status has increasingly become the central factor in whether today's children rise above, remain, or descend into poverty. Income, for example, in a lone mother household in the U.S. is only 37% of married households, while cohabitating unmarried parents have an average of only 61% of marriage households. So from an economic point of view, marriage is far better, not just from an income point of view, but from the efficiencies gained through marriage. Also, U.S. children raised in two-parent married families suffer a 41% loss of income when their parents get divorced, while children born in lone mother households experience a 68% increase in income when they get married. And the many studies done on this confirm that this is a worldwide phenomena, at least in Western countries. Furthermore, married parent families have more financial assets and are wealthier than other types of households, including home ownership, and that lone mother and cohabitating parents have substantially fewer assets than other households. Home ownership, though more expensive than renting, is a way of increasing wealth through equity and appreciation. But it also provides access to lines of credit and other financial instruments. Researchers also found that two parents living apart and one child have a 50% higher poverty threshold than a married couple living together with a child. In other words, the separated parents have considerably higher costs, which greatly increase the chances that the child or children will live in poverty, which in turn will limit the child's opportunities. 97% of millennials, that's a person reaching young adulthood or marriageable age in the early 21st century, who follow what is called the success sequence, will not be poor as they enter into their 30s. What's the success sequence? First, earn at least a high school diploma and get a job. Then marry before having children and wait until at least 20 years of age to have those children. This success rate is largely true for ethnic minorities as well as those who grew up in poor families. But unfortunately, fewer millennials are keeping these things in order compared to their boomer and Xer forebearers. This is why it's not merely one-parent versus two-parent families that make the difference. The U.S. Census Bureau finds that poverty rate for children living with two unmarried cohabitating parents is similar to that of single mother homes than to those living with their married mother and father. Married people, regardless of how much they have, tend to manage their money differently than divorced, single, and cohabitating people. So marriage has become the fault line dividing economic classes. The proliferation of single-parent households has been the cause of virtually all of the increase in child poverty since the 1970s. But it isn't just that the wealthy are more likely to marry. It is that marriage itself is a wealth-generating institution, and all classes who follow the success sequence, no matter what their socioeconomic background, 
are better off than their counterparts who do not follow the success sequence. Marriage is even a more powerful factor than race in dividing social classes. God's plan, my friends, always leads to the best economic results. Listen to what God inspired Moses to say to God's people. It is found in Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 13. I won't read all the verses, but listen to what God says. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, blessed shalt thou be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store, Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Now verse 9. The Lord shall establish thee and holy people unto himself, as he hath sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God, and walk in his ways. Verses 11 to 14. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy ground, in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven to give the rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail, and thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath. If that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day, to observe and to do them, and thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Did you hear those promises of prosperity? If we follow in the ways of the Lord, he will bless us with all that we need. We will not be in poverty. The trouble is that so many people don't follow the instructions God has given. They live the way they please, even though they call themselves Christians or followers of Christ. And they defend their lifestyle as if that is the best they can do. Oh, my friends, God's way is the only way that makes sense. And in the context of marriage, it produces the best results. Now, here's another serious problem of alternative marriage arrangements. Children growing up without the benefit of marriage face heavier social challenges that will impact their chance for academic success, increase their risk of substance abuse and chronic disease, increase their risk of being involved in criminal behavior, increase their likelihood of having a child before they are able to support themselves or their child, which will dramatically increase their own risk of being poor and perpetuating the cycle of poverty. A consistent and irrefutable mountain of research has shown, reaching back to the 1970s and beyond, that marriage strongly boosts every important measure of well-being for children, women, and men. Pick any measure you can imagine, overall physical and mental health, income, savings, employment, educational success, 
general life contentment and happiness, sexual satisfaction, even recovery from serious disease, healthy diet, exercise, married people rate markedly and consistently better in each of these and so many more compared to their single, divorced, or cohabitating peers. Thus, marriage is an essential active ingredient in improving one's overall life prospects, regardless of class, race, or educational status. Certainly, many single parents can and do provide quality parenting, but the research overwhelmingly shows that the odds are formidably stacked against a child raised in a single parent or cohabitating household. But a marriage with a father present has a substantial effect on the stability of the home, and consequently the adjustments a child needs to make are much easier because both parents contribute to the learning and growth of the child. Single-parent families are fragile families. Prior to 1960, non-marital births were rare and were followed by quick marriages or adoption. But when the sexual revolution hit, births to unmarried mothers increased dramatically by a startling 700% in just two generations, from 5% in 1960 to 40% of all births in 2014. Children born to unmarried mothers are more likely to grow up in single-parent households, experience unstable living arrangements, live in poverty, and have socio-emotional problems. As these children reach adolescence, they are more likely to have low educational attainment, engage in sex at a younger age, and have a birth outside of marriage. As young adults, children born outside of marriage are more likely to be idle, neither in school or employed, have lower occupational status and income, and have more troubled marriages and more divorces than those born to married parents. Unmarried mothers generally have lower incomes, lower education levels, and are more likely to be dependent on welfare assistance compared with married mothers. Even children born to cohabitating parents experience higher levels of socioeconomic disadvantage and fare worse across a range of behavioral and emotional outcomes than those born to married parents. Those exponential birth increases have been largely among poor, uneducated young women. At first, they were at a higher rate in black and Hispanic populations. Since the 1980s, however, births to unmarried white women have been on the rise as well. Unmarried mothers with limited education and low earning power, as much as they would like to, struggle to provide their children with even the basic opportunities they need to thrive and develop. If their children had access to the time and money of two married adults, even if that family were poor, it also would provide a system of checks and balances that promoted a higher quality of parenting. Social scientist Charles Murray believes that single parenthood is damaging to children in so many ways that to list them individually would be to trivialize them. Not all single parents start unmarried, of course. 30% of American single parents are divorced, and the vast majority of children of divorces live with their mothers. But if you want to give yourself, and especially your children, the most difficult path in life, try starting out as a single mother. They don't have it easy, not at all, and we should have sympathy for them, even though they have often made the worst of choices. A good marriage has qualities that single families cannot substitute. 
We're in a cultural crisis with fewer and fewer understanding God's plan for marriage. God intended that marriages should be formed in a permanent, mutual, and exclusive sacred covenant before God between a biological man and a woman for an intimate relationship that represents and glorifies God. Consider Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Listen for as many of these elements of marriage included in Jesus' words as you can. Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning, made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Of course, you see the biological male and female part of the marriage. That means that same-sex marriages are an oxymoron or a contradiction in terms, and a civil contract will never have the sacredness or permanence of a true marriage. Also, when society has diluted the distinctness of biological gender and under various types of abuse, many people become gender confused. Did you see the permanence and exclusiveness of the relationship in Let Not Man Put Asunder and also Leave Father and Mother and Start a New Family? God's intention was for children to have the love and nurture of both a father and a mother, and for good reason. Both of them contribute different things to a child's understanding of life and the world around him. They cannot be substituted without substantial loss to the child. Only God can resolve some of the underlying insecurity and uncertainty, as well as the personality issues of fatherless children. Did you see the implied mutuality in Jesus' words, cleave to his wife? Each person is in the marriage to give of himself or herself for the benefit of the other and their offspring. And did you see the intimacy of marriage in the one flesh? The children are a combination of two parents. They're identified as their children by their DNA. There is a deep connection there that is not involved with other children from other marriages. Did you notice the sacred covenant involved in marriage in the words, what God hath joined together? God intended that marriage should be so close and so loving that nothing can separate them except death. That sacred covenant is not to be lightly entered into. Marriage and family are God's idea, and as divine institutions, they are not open to human renegotiation or revision. The problem is that our social culture has redefined marriage to be something that it isn't. So the intimacy of the marriage is no longer respected by multitudes, neither is the sacred covenant, and many times people enter into relationships to meet their own needs. These, along with other factors, set the stage for divorce and the chaos that it brings to a child's mind and experience. At the beginning of the 20th century, divorce was rare. But since 1915, divorce had risen steadily in first-time marriages from about 10% to about 33% in 1970. Divorce settlements can be acrimonious, and child custody and financial support arrangements so stressful that some single divorced parents envy single, never-married parents. With the rise of no-fault divorces in the mid-70s, Divorce had risen to about 40 to 50% of first-time marriages in 2015. It is significantly higher for second marriages.
The effects of divorce on children are often as profound as the death of a parent, but linger much longer and can haunt children well into adulthood. I just really miss having a mom and a dad, said a teenage girl who had experienced a family breakup. I'm afraid of falling in love someday and having the fear of my marriage ending up like this. Such statements are very common among children of divorce. Sadly, this girl's fears are real, as children are more likely to replicate the same households in which they were raised. Jesus teaches that divorce is a compromise because of the wickedness of their hearts. Here are his words. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. Fornication is not God's plan, so divorce is also not God's ideal. Yet he permitted it. Actually, God hates divorce. Malachi 2.16 says, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. Another sobering fact is the significantly higher rates of child abuse in single-parent families in contrast to intact married family. And you know what Jesus said about that. Speaking of the little children, he said, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Really, alternatives to God's plan is an offense against the little children that are brought into the world in these alternative arrangements to marriage. Mothers are by far the primary parent in single-parent families. As important as mothers are in the life of the child, Fathers matter, and their absence affects a child into adulthood. Many studies now substantiate that if a child lives apart from a biological father, multiple areas of his well-being, including education, mental health, family relationships, and job and career opportunities, come under increased assault. Here's a brief summary of those findings. When fathers are absent, especially in the early years of a child's life, the social and emotional development of a child is impaired. During childhood, parents help their children to learn to deal with the negative emotions such as fear, anger, frustration, anxiety, loneliness, and sadness. Fathers as well as mothers are instrumental in helping children learn appropriate responses to these emotions. Additionally, children with absent fathers may experience higher levels of negative emotions as a result of the extra psychological stressors placed on households without fathers. Children with absent fathers are more likely to externalize their negative emotions. This could include physical aggression, disobeying rules, cheating, stealing, and destruction of property. This is especially true of boys whose fathers are absent, although some girls also exhibit these behaviors. Impaired social and emotional development persisted into the teen years of a child with an absent father and seemed to be the cause for a higher degree of risky behaviors such as early experimentation with cigarettes, drugs, alcohol, as well as sexual promiscuity and teenage pregnancy. In turn, these behaviors had a direct influence on their adult lives. These children were more likely not to finish high school, which impacted their earning power and income levels, they were more likely to experience adult poverty and to be involved with criminal behavior. 
They also had a higher incidence of poor mental and physical health. Young people who are fearful of divorce but don't want to raise children on their own have opted for another family arrangement, cohabiting. In the last 20 years, the number of cohabiting couples has tripled. Today, about one in four children in America and presumably other Western nations are born to cohabitating couples, and that number is growing. How does cohabitating affect children? As 18 notable family scholars stated in a 2011 report from the National Marriage Project, cohabitation is not the functional equivalent of marriage and is the largely unrecognized threat to the quality and stability of children's lives today. Cohabiting parents are less stable than married parents. Nearly half of parents cohabitating at the time of their child's birth break up within five years, compared to only 20% of married parents. Children born to cohabiting parents are more likely to transition in and out of new and often confusing family arrangements after their parents split up. They have a much higher rate of poverty, 47%, comparable to single-parent households at 48%, than do children of married parents, which are 11%. Additionally, children of biological cohabitating parents are over four times more likely to be physically, sexually, and emotionally abused as are those living with their married parents. The benefits that accrue to children from living with married biological parents are incontrovertible. But how do we increase the likelihood of marriage? Ironically, the marital success and personal success go hand in hand like a good marriage. Those who follow the three secrets of the success sequence provide a much better environment for their children to prepare them for success in life on multiple fronts. Here are the three secrets again in order. First, finish high school before marriage. Marry before having a child. Wait to have your first child until you are at least 20 years old. While so-called shotgun marriages, where the couple chooses to marry after conception, but before the birth of their baby, gives them and their child a better outcome, but it is still far from God's ideal. After all, anything done in haste is never done well. Getting this sequence right gives children incredible advantages across all racial lines and economic classes. It also gives married couples better advantages too. And as generations of productive, stable families enrich a community, they impact societies and nations. Conversely, as more and more people live by their impulses and for themselves, families become less stable and children become less certain of their security, their gender, and ultimately their destiny. Societies and nations lose their footing and eventually collapse. Go back and study the history of Greece, Rome, and many other nations or city-states that have fallen into liberal and moral uncertainty. Why does the formula work? It has to do with men and marriage. Marriage shapes men into producers and providers and savers. Singleness and cohabitating don't. The Nobel Prize-winning economist George Akerlof in a prominent lecture more than a decade ago, observed married men are more attached to the labor force. They have less substance abuse. They commit less crime, and they are less likely to become the victims of crime, have better health, and are less accident-prone. Then he explained why. Men settle down, 
and they get married. And if they fail to get married, they fail to settle down. It is the father who gives his children the strongest lessons of self-control. And without self-control, no one can succeed in this life or the life to come. Mothers can teach some lessons in self-control. It is mature fathers, however, who provide children with the strongest sense of what that means. How to think logically and objectively. How to restrain oneself in frustrating circumstances. How to maintain an even keel emotionally. These are key aspects of a father's somewhat intangible but very real influence on his family and subsequently and eventually on society. While mothers can provide something along this line, a father is far more gifted in this area. The lesson is clear. Cultures that upheld the ideal of exclusive committed marriages thrived. But once a society loosened its sexual mores and abandoned monogamy, it began to degenerate and eventually fell. In an age of rampant sexual abuse, sexual predators, and intense pressure to engage in pre- and extramarital sex with much encouragement from Hollywood, the music industry, peers, and social networks, we can see that our Western societies are nearing their deaths. The Lord's plan for his people is even more relevant in our generation than in previous generations. Training for the life work then marriage, then children, is always the best plan for raising secure children. And now science has documented the rightness of this principle. It's extremely interesting that research is now upholding the value of biblical marriage, though they don't call it that, as more important than ever to maintaining social stability of any society. And since biblical marriage is under massive assault, God's people need to be more concerned about it than ever. Biblical marriage is something worth fighting for, voting for, and defending at every turn. When God charged married parents with the task of bearing and raising children, he was setting in place social laws of cause and effect that, if followed, would result in blessings for many generations. By studying the effects on children of married and non-married households, these laws of blessing are being understood more fully. Research now validates that the closer we come to God's ideal for marriage and family, the better our lives, our communities, and our nations will be. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, what an important lesson we've learned today. Our families are so important to a stable society, yet the enemy has attacked families incessantly. And in recent times, in these end times, it is as if he has unleashed an avalanche of marriage alternatives, gender confusion, and general immorality all of which is designed to undermine biblical marriages. God's plan is always the best plan, and let us uphold it wherever we can. God, give us the strength of mind to understand the issues we face as we near the close of probation. Let us be faithful mothers and fathers. Let us let our family light shine into the world around us, and thank you for your Holy Spirit, which can imbue in us a sense of the higher purposes of God who sits in calm eternity, working to the benefit of his children. Thank you for your overcoming power that we can use to do battle with the enemy. In Jesus' precious and holy name I pray. Amen.
We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you so much for your support. If you've been impressed by this message and it has stirred and blessed your soul, please consider making a gift to help some other poor souls find their way to heaven through the CDs from Keep the Faith. The song you've just heard is called Fairest Lord Jesus, played by Henry Higgins. The song is recorded on a CD with other lovely hymns and songs called Day by Day. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry, and if you would like to have a copy or copies of this CD for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we'll gladly send them. Please mention the day-by-day CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, Catholic Inc., what the church is really worth. In a special investigation done by The Age, Melbourne's major newspaper, it has been revealed that the value of the Catholic Church's wealth in Australia is at least $30 billion and raises serious questions about compensation payments to victims of child sex abuse. The Catholic Church has tried to minimize its wealth by undervaluing its assets and saying that it would have to cut back on social programs, many of which are government-funded, if it has to pay large payouts to victims of sex abuse. The Catholic Church in Victoria is worth more than $9 billion, making it the biggest non-government property owner in the state, and much wealthier than it has admitted in evidence to major official inquiries into its child sexual abuse. The Church testified before the Royal Commission that the amount of its assets in trust were only $109 million, and this despite it owning hundreds of schools, churches, and other assets. In fact, the AIDS investigation has found the Archdiocese owns about $115 million in property in the working-class southeast suburban Melbourne municipality of Greater Dandenong alone. And the fine print of the report reveals the properties disclosed to the Royal Commission were valued at historical cost. That is, the amount paid for properties when they were originally acquired, often in the 1800s or early 1900s. Many were government land grants, and therefore their historical value would be zero, but their actual current market value would have soared. The fine print discloses other investments in shares, convertible notes, and what appears to be commercial property of $72.9 million. The six-month investigation has found that the Church misled the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse, by grossly undervaluing its property portfolio. Figures extrapolated from a huge volume of Victorian Council valuation data show the church has more than $30 billion in property and other assets Australia-wide. Based on these figures, the church is clearly the largest non-government property owner by value in the state and close to the largest in Australia rivaling giant Westfield with its vast network of shopping centers and other assets, making it in the top five property owners in Australia. The church also has extensive non-property assets, including Catholic Church Insurance and its own internal banks, often known as Catholic Development Funds, which have total assets of several billion dollars, 
including more than $1 billion in Melbourne. Plus, it has other investments, including superannuation and telecommunications. A church-owned fund manager has more than $1.4 billion under management, asked specifically to nominate a value for the assets of the church and its associated entities, Melbourne Archdiocese Communications Director Shane Healy said such information was not available. The under-evaluations raise serious new questions about the church's decades-long bid to avoid or minimize compensation payments to abuse survivors. The Royal Commission reported that payments averaged just $35,000 under the Melbourne response, the compensation scheme established by the then-Archbishop George Pell in 1996. A total of $11.3 million to 324 survivors of child sexual abuse. In contrast, the Melbourne Archdiocese paid $39 million in 2015, more than three times the total compensation amount for new premium offices, the heritage-listed Industry House in East Melbourne near St. Patrick's Cathedral. These figures confirm that what we have known, there is a huge inequity between the Catholic Church's wealth and their responses to survivors, said Helen Lost, chief executive of the In Good Faith Foundation, which supports abuse survivors. The 600 survivors registered for our foundation services continue to experience minimal compensation and a lack of comprehensive care in relation to their church abuses. They say their needs are the lowest of church priorities. Healy said the church's meeting, the claims of survivors whose complaints of abuse were upheld, was amongst its highest priorities. He said that since the report the church has paid an extra $17.2 million to survivors. The AGES investigation also calls into question the privileges the church enjoys, including exemptions from nearly all forms of taxation and billions of dollars in government funding each year to run services. $7.9 billion for its Australian schools alone in 2015, and the investigation involved obtaining property valuations from 36 Victorian councils, many under Freedom of Information Act requests. It identified more than 1,860 church-owned properties with capital improved value, land plus buildings, of just under $7 billion. The age has used the property and other financial data to extrapolate to wider Victoria and nationally, arriving at a conservative estimate of more than $9 billion in Catholic Church-owned wealth for the state and more than $30 billion across Australia. The church is notoriously secretive about and protective of its wealth. Church leaders have repeatedly publicly underestimated church assets and resisted greater financial accountability and stonewalled requests for information. The value of the church's assets is a question that remains unanswered, said Liberal MP Georgie Crozier, who chaired the parliamentary committee. It is a question I would still like answered. It appears, Ms. Crozier told Cardinal George Pell in 2013 in his appearance before the inquiry, that the leadership within the Catholic Church has been misdirected and geared towards the protection of the Church and its assets. Asked about the value of Church assets, Pell obfuscated. One, I do not know. Secondly, it would depend a bit on how you define them, you know, what value is there in a Church building. In spite of the low valuations at historic costs, the church insures its assets at current commercial terms. 
In addition, while the Catholic Church often presents itself as a single institution, its finances are complicated by an ancient, disaggregated structure that has allowed church leaders to sidestep questions about overall wealth and made it notoriously difficult for abuse survivors to identify a defendant to sue for damages. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and of fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thyene wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and the souls of men. And the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. Revelation 18, verse 15. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.